Hey, pal. Rodney, how are you today? I'm doing really well, man. I got a new bedtime routine this year. This year is in 2019. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. I start, well, most nights I start at 845. This is to be real. I don't start every night at 845, but start 845 with a hot bath, as hot as I can oh. possibly take it, with oh. Epsom salt. <laughs> See mm-hmm. other shtick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See prior shows. See prior episode. I would tell you the number, but I don't know what number this is going on. So, you know, you're going to have to dig. Then I take a cold shower, as cold as I can possibly take it. And then I either, I usually uh, listen to a book, an audio book while I'm in the bath. Um, and then I'll probably read something or journal. And then I'm out like a light. Like I fall asleep within a minute after doing these things. Wow. Very different than my bedtime routine, which is watch a TV show, <laughs> meditate for five minutes, and then go to bed. But I'm starting to do something new. And once I start my bedtime routine, mm-hmm. my phone gets plugged in downstairs. No longer, I won't look at it. Like if I've started my bedtime routine, I'm not looking at my phone because it screws me up in a second. Mm-hmm. And so then I'll meditate and I'll just go straight to bed. My phone stays downstairs, no longer next to my bed. I like that. That's a, that's a good one. Bedtime routines. Defend, they're important. Defend the last now, hour. That's what I call it. I have a lot of questions, mm-hmm. but I got to go. Defend the last hour. Get after it. Welcome to or welcome back to More In Common. This is our social experiment. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. And we bring people into this safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about their stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in conversation and ultimately how we think. And we have a lot of these conversations and we're seeing a lot of similar threads through all of them. So what we're doing is breaking down these conversations to create a set of tools and a map that'll help you become a conversation boss so that you can be a catalyst for conversation in your day-to-day life. Don't forget, you can find everything you need to know about us at moreincommonpod.com. So go check it out. Now, Rodney, going Mm -hmm. back to our last episode with Karin, what what were some big takeaways for you? One of the biggest things for me was, I mean, we opened the conversation with her talking about her choice to work in LA so she could be with her family, with her son, with her husband. And I think um, that was a good conversation and I really enjoyed that. And then throughout the rest of the conversation, what I noticed is her intentionality, just her intention behind making decisions. Uh, she, I mean, she's just a very thoughtful person in general. doesn't really, you, I, I could just tell that she just thinks about the things she says and the things she does. And she really appreciated that and enjoyed uh, her sharing that with us. So that, that was the biggest thing I took. That's awesome. You know, you? And for, yeah, for me, it, you know, really getting to know her, right? Like she's a, she's a public figure who's got a lot of press around her right now. Mm -hmm. And to, to really get to know her in a deeper way, I thought was, was pretty cool. And, you know, how she reframes or reframed her perspective on family versus career. I thought that was just a really awesome thing thinking about not the missed opportunity in career, but the gained opportunity to spend with her, with her, with her son, right? Uh, Michio. So, I mean, I just thought that was so awesome. And there were some really cool conversation things weaved in there. Um, you know, very, you know, without explicitly talking about how not to assume intent and meeting people where they are. So I thought that was, there was some really cool parallels to a lot of things that we talk about often. So I thought that was. Yeah, completely, completely agree. That reframe was, was huge too. And actually reframing was another one of those themes. Like she did it with her family thing and then also with, with losing her brother and how that caused a big uh, reframe and how she just looked at her life. Yeah. Power frame. So, who do we have today? Today, we have Tristan. Tristan's entire life journey is a testament to trusting the voices in her head, especially when they didn't make sense to others. Like when she went to four colleges in four years or winning a job at Teen People magazine off the radio and a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, Tristan, to the core of her being, believes that life is is to live wholeheartedly. We have to dare to answer the call of our own wild. This is the foundation for her passion in helping women connect to their inner voice and to pro- or project it out loudly. Uh, Tristan holds a master's in psychology from Pepperdine. She's a licensed psychotherapist. She used to be a consumer 
trend forecaster for a lot of big companies like Teen People, People, Columbia Records, CAA. She's consulted a whole bunch of brands like Nordstrom and Adidas. And she's spoken to a whole lot of other brands. And she's got kind of, kind of a recognizable name. So wh- what do we get into with her? Yeah, I mean, we talk about her transition from you know being a trend forecaster into psychology and becoming a psychotherapist and her approach. Uh, we talk about personal philosophy and a lot of she gives a lot of awesome nuggets um, in, in, in helping manage mental health. So it's, it's really, really an awesome conversation. And there are a couple of things I want you um, to pay attention to within the episode. Um, notice the back and forth when we actually are talking about personal philosophy. Uh, the, the words themselves mean something very different to the three of us. Um, but rather than assuming what the other person meant, we, we actually dig in and ask a lot of questions. And it's just a really great example of what it means in a conversation to not make assumptions. And then there's a pause toward the end. I want you to, it's intentional. Um, and you will know it. It's, it's at the end of the whole episode. Just recognize how you feel in that pause. And of course, I have to disclaimer, there's a bit of profanity in this episode. Um, so just, just to call it out. Um, but it's probably you, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. It was me every time. Uh, it's always me, right? Um, but hey, enjoy the show. And hey, uh, can I can I say something real quick yeah, before we jump in? Please do. Welcome back, man. It's good to have you back. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, uh, I forgot to do it on the last episode, so I yeah. just wanted to say welcome back. I appreciate it. Welcome appreciate back, it. welcome <laughs> back, welcome back. All right. Well, enjoy the show. Passing through the three gates of truthful speech. Do you know about this? So there's three, three gates which must pass before words come out of our mouth. And, you know, gate number one is, is it true? What am I about to say? Is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? And if you truly live in that, you will talk so much less, which gives you so much space to listen so much more. Because oftentimes we pass through two of the gates, but not the third. So when I work with my clients, I wholeheartedly believe that they are their own life guru. Like they know exactly what is right for them, but we get separated from that, right? Because there's so many voices in our head, voices from our parents, voices from our partners, voices from media, voices from all these expectations um, cloud our personal perception of what optimal is. So part of my work with them is coming home to that. Today, we are with Tristan Coopersmith. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for this being here. so fun. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> it's, been, it's been fun and we haven't even started yet. It's great. I, I know my Wim Hof breathing is interrupted. <laughs> that, was a, that was a shtick in one of our recent episodes too. Um, I do it before working out. How's me would do... It, it's good. <laughs> Sold. So, so you're a th- psychotherapist. I am. By license, I am. Well, he studied psychology. I'm an engineer, and I don't know what psychotherapy is. So, could you tell me what? I'm I'm not being psychotic. <laughs> I really don't know. Because you really have a look on your face, like I know. No, I and really. it's a trick. This is not a trick. I seriously don't know. I've heard of it, and I've probably used the term, but I don't. I didn't use it correctly, for sure. So, psychology is right the study of human behavior, the human mind. You know how how it all links up. And my approach to psychotherapy is. Um, a little bit non-traditional, um, but I work with clients. I work with individuals and couples and really helping people live optimal lives. And usually that means identifying patterns that they've created, um, whether they were learned in childhood or adopted in adulthood, but learning to break down those patterns and create um, mechanisms within the mind, body, and spirit that will lead to a life that you're truly alive with and truly passionate about that works for you on your terms. So psychology and psychotherapy, they're the same thing. Psychotherapy is the practice of psychology. Psychology. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Essentially. There you go. go. What's, what's an optimal life? How do you, how do you define that for your clients? You don't. My clients have to define it themselves. So when I work with my clients, I wholeheartedly believe that they are their own life guru like they know exactly what is right for them, but we get separated from that, right? Because there's so many voices in our head, voices from our parents, voices from our partners, voices from media, voices from all these expectations um, cloud our perspe- per- personal perception of what optimal is. So part of my work with them is coming home to that, you know, and, um, and giving ourselves permission, being brave to, to live in that path, even if it's unpopular. You know, I think when you are brave, you inherently are unpopular, um, at least to some people. 
and that's okay to be to go against you know what you, what other are, people are want you for saying, you. So basically, being brave, you're always going to have a critic. For sure, absolutely, yeah. right? We that's what we we need brave people. Hmm. Well, even if you're totally. not brave, I mean, no matter what you do or say, there's somebody that's going to agree with it or not. If you're not brave, you're yeah. going to have a critic yeah. and you're not going to be true to yourself. Which kind of goes back to the bamboo, right? So, the the idea of the bamboo is people can wave me around. They cannot like what I'm da- doing with my life or saying, um, but I'm so firmly rooted, like I'm so firmly rooted in what I, what I think, believe, and say that it doesn't matter. Then I become like unfuckwithable. That's a shirt. Unfuck Unfuckwithable. Un- <laughs> Ten times fast. <laughs> Have you read uh, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck? I've skimmed it. I haven't. I enjoyed it. I did I did the audio book, so it was I mean, funny. I think we should give a fuck. I think we should give a fuck about the things that are worth giving a fuck about. So that's really what the book's about. Right. It's so, about prioritizing the fuck's given. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we should do no, that. No, it's, it's, it's funny and you say that because this, this weird thing is like, I don't care about w- anything anybody thinks, but you should care to a degree about certain things regardless outside of your yourself because then you just walk through life selfishly and inherently maybe an asshole to everybody else around you and you make the world a worse place <laughs> as you leave it versus a better place for being in it, right? Yeah, it's like totally. not caring about anything's as bad as caring about everything. Everything. Great. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's another way that I work with my clients is like establishing their values. We all sort of live by our core values and I try and hone them down to like five or seven. And it's like when we are living in true alignment with our values, that informs what we should care about. That informs who we spend our time with, how we spend our time, um, how we make our money. You know, that's when we can get lined up with that. But again, it goes back to like taking the time to come within and really listen and go, well, what matters to me? Okay, this doesn't, this doesn't align with say my parents, but that's okay. You know, because this is my path. This is my course. And that isn't selfish. That's, we need people to be like that. We need people to be living more in truth with them, their own selves. Can you imagine, like, if people were more aligned with their own selves, we, addiction rates would totally go down um, because we wouldn't be trying to come outside of oh, ourselves. Self medicate with, yeah, you know, because we'd be like lined up with ourselves and you have to be able to do that unapologetically. And that's hard, you know. To- yeah. So how did you how did you get into the practice? How long have you been practicing? And- um, this is a second career. M- my parents will tell you this is my nineteenth career. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have always been the kind of kid to rock to the beat of our own drum. And case in point, I went to four schools undergrad in four mm-hmm. years, and they just didn't align. I was there, and I was like, "This is cool, but I kind of want to try something else." And my whole career sort of followed suit with that. And so I've done a lot of different things. Um, I was a trend forecaster for 11 years, which basically means I traveled the world and I forecasted macro and micro trends and helped um, companies and brands and celebrities understand the mindset of their consumers and create product and service that they would resonate with. And I loved that. It was a really sexy job. It was the job that was like, pinch me. I'm like, this is crazy. I get paid for this. And it was really, really fun, but it wasn't soulful. And I kind of had my bathroom breakdown, Elizabeth Gilbert kind of eat, pray, love style moment. And I just locked myself in the bathroom for like two days. And I came out and I said to my um, husband at the time, I said, I'm quitting my job today and we're probably going to get divorced. And he was like, no, you're not. And I was like, yes, I am. And I went to my, I worked at CAA, which. Creative artist. Yeah. Um, is a pretty profound place to work in Hollywood. Why do you say profound? What, or what's the well, meaning of profound in that use? Well, in the sense of it's a. 800 pound gorilla in the room? Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's the place that people aspire to work at. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a significant component of Hollywood. And so it was a very prestigious opportunity and job. And so it's like nobody gets to be, it's like Paul Ryan walking away. Like nobody gets to that job and then walks away. And walks away. away. Exactly. Especially with the job that I had because my job was just a sexy job. And I was way overpaid for what I was doing. Really? You felt overpaid? I felt overpaid. That was part of my bathroom breakdown. I was like, what I'm, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right for me. You know, there are people that get paid that do such important work that get paid so little and I get paid so much and this doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Hmm. Um, so I did it. So I went that day and I quit my job and I was the breadwinner for my family. And, um, that was a really big high all the way back 
to the beach from the 405 and then the reality hit and I was like, oh, fuck. And, um, <laughs> but what I realized that I loved so much from my job was the human psyche. And what I was studying was why are people drawn to this actor or this band or this type of film or this store? Um, but it was the why, like why, what motivates people? And so that ended up putting me back in school to become a therapist because I just was so hungry to learn why, what motivates us. Um, how long, how long you've been practicing? I've been practicing for six years. Cool. So where'd you grow up? Let's go way back. Way back. Way back machine. I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And for the longest time, this is where we're talking about conscious language. I used to tell people I was from DC. Now, granted, I grew up like three blocks from DC. But if you know DC, Chevy Chase, Maryland is not DC. It is not DC. It is. It's like Chicago suburbs are not Chicago. Precisely. People still say Chicago. Yeah. Right. And... I would say DC, um, well, actually, it depends on who's in office now that I think about it. Really? I was going to say, so why? Say <laughs> now I say it's funny because now I say Chevy Chase. Um, huh. When Obama was in, would you say DC? DC, straight up, you know. Um, but I would say DC as a, as a younger person, like when I was an undergrad and I first started at NYU and people were from, I'm like, I'm from DC because there was. there was a coolness about it. And um, I think there was an automatic, like, oh, you must be smart. If you're from DC, it's ridiculous. But in my mind, that's what it was. And if you're from Chevy Chase, it's like, well, what's that? And who cares? Um, Sounds backwards. I mean, those perceptions do exist. They do. I just don't care anymore. You know, so looking in the rearview mirror of like who I was back then, it was like, it was important for me to people, for people to perceive me in a certain way, just based on where I was from that I didn't even choose. How did you figure out that you were doing that? I figured out I was doing it when... Oh, I was at the Olympics in, uh, I forget, the Vancouver Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but there, there was a lot of negative energy around the U.S. And there, it wasn't like prideful to say you're from the, from the U.S. At that point? At that point. And I definitely didn't want to say I was from D.C. Right. And I just come back from living mm-hmm. in Europe and it was the same thing. And my husband was Canadian, so... I was like, everybody likes you and everybody hates me. And um, being from D.C. felt even like more like I was the enemy. And huh. so I was like, oh, I'm from Maryland. <laughs> and I'm like, what's the difference? I mean, this is kind of circuitous. This doesn't really make a, a lot of sense. But the, the idea was, um, you know, the idea is what do I want people to think of me? And am I willing to change the facts? Right? Like we talk about right. social media. Am I willing to change the facts of my day so people think I'm having an amazing day? So now I like yeah. proudly wear it. I'm like, yeah, I'm from Chevy Chase, Maryland. It's about portraying the story you want to tell versus the 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 truth. It was the truth. And yeah. just owning who you are, right? How do you like, how do you yeah. balance that daily with and maybe you don't, maybe you just like when you get on the elevator and people are like, How are you doing today? And like maybe you're having a shitty day. Do you say that? Or how do you and how do how do you how do you balance that? Um, my standard answer when people ask me how I'm doing today is I'm lucky. That's what I say. I don't say like, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm fine, I'm, you know, tired. I just say I'm lucky because no matter what, no matter where my head and heart space is, I'm lucky for a million reasons, you know, and it's great because it also stops people on their tracks. They're like, you're lucky. Why? And I'm like, I'm lucky because I'm riding in an elevator with you. Like it gives me an opportunity if I am having a shitty day to get out of my shitty day because I don't have to stay there, right? We choose to stay in the moment that happened this morning. Right. If my dishwasher broke this morning, that's not now. That was four hours ago. I can choose to stay in that moment or not. Right. Mm-hmm. It's true. So what, what was childhood like for you in Chevy Chase, Maryland? My childhood was exactly as it needed to be. I, hmm. that's kind of the way that I best can answer that. It was, um, you mean based in like my, my family unit or based in mm-hmm. Chevy Chase? Yeah. No. Yeah. Right, growing up was for Tristan. Yeah, growing up was because here and here's yeah. the reason I ask. Obviously, we ask all our guests this, yeah. but in particular, there's a interesting theme in your life. Uh, maybe I'm off base here. That seems very rooted in decision. Hmm. Like you, you have you are very confident and comfortable in the decision that you're about to make, mm-hmm. whether you're in a good place or a bad place whether you feel good about where things are or not or, or whatever the case may be in college, um, your jobs, mm-hmm. whatever you, you to make that decision to just say, Nope, I'm done at work. 
or to say, yep, I'm done my freshman year. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm done my sophomore year. I'm going There's obviously an enablement that your parents maybe built within you to be comfortable with that? That's such a good question. You should be a therapist. (laughs) I feel like I'm on the sofa now. Yeah, no, you know, I think that my parents never forced me to stick with anything. As in, I played soccer for a year and I was like, yeah, that's not my jam. And so my mom's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to dance. And I did that. I was like, yeah, I kind of suck at that. Like, let me see what else I can do. And I remember going through a period in my life where I was like, you should have forced me to stick with something. Like, I'm not good at anything. Like, I can kind of play soccer. I can kind of dance. I can kind of play piano, but like, I can't do anything. And there was an emphasis in my, my perspective of things of like, you have to be really, really good at something. And I wasn't. And now I'm so grateful that she let me just try all kinds of things because I have no fear when it comes to trying things. Um, it doesn't mean I have a lack of commitment. It's sort of just, a, a listening to my inner calling. And it's like, okay, I feel like I've, I feel like I've completed this. I feel like I've done all that I want to do with this. And that's okay. Like I just closed the business that I put every single thing I had into. And it was an incredible experience. And I loved it. And when I reflected back on the original journal entry, I wrote about what do I want this business to become? I had checked off every single thing on it. And it was like 72 different things and more. And I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. I think I, I've, I'm kind of being pulled to something else right now. And let me, let me explore that. Because I figure, you know, like, we only get this one shot as far as I'm aware in my conscious mind. And I want to explore it as much as I can um, without the fear of what will happen if I let go of something else. It's kind of the deal. So I do, I definitely credit my parents to that. I think that that's really cool that they did it. But I also have a boyfriend, a high school boyfriend to credit for this too. Um, it, I was a junior and he was a senior and he had been accepted to Harvard and Stanford and he was having a hard time deciding. And he had to make the decision the next day and he was a soccer player and it's his last soccer game and he was having a terrible soccer game and he came up to the bleachers. He's like, hey, do you have a quarter? I was like, sure. And I handed him a quarter and he's like, heads at Stanford, tails it's Harvard. And I was like, oh shit. He's like, you flip it. And I was like, okay. So I flipped it and it landed on Stanford heads. It was heads for Stanford. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go finish the game. And he ended up having a great rest of the game and he went to Stanford. And what I learned in that moment as I was 16, 17, was that we already know the answers within us. We know them. We're just so scared to say that we know them because if it had landed on tails, he would have asked me to do best out of three. So, you know, it's a trick that I use all the time. Like I just flip a coin and in the moment where it's in the air, I'm like, what do I want? You know, what do I hope it lands on? And you're always rooting for one thing or another. And if you're not rooting for one thing or another, it means you're cool with either and you win either way. Does that make sense? So this is, this is a pendulum. And so pendulum can help inform decisions. This is more the woo-woo version of the quarter, but I'll show you how it works. All about woo-woo. Okay. So I'll show you how it works. So, so first I'm going to establish what's yes and no. These are for yes and no decisions. Okay. So pendulum, show me my yes. So my yes looks like a, a clockwise circle. And show me my no. And that's a line. Okay, it's going to be different for you guys. But this is my yes and my no. So I can say, um, am I sitting in a room with Rodney? Just going to make sure it's right. Yes, I am. Okay. Okay. Do I have on Converse? No. Just making sure it's right. So now let's think of a decision I need to make today. should I take my son out for a Slurpee after camp? Yes, yes apparently I should. He wins, right? <laughs> so obviously not a big deal decision, but I'm like, ah, oh, it's so bad for you. You know, like I wrestle, I have my mind gremlins of like, do we really need to do that? Will he be an asshole if I take him? I will be an asshole if I don't take him. You know, so it's like decision making, but that makes it really clear because it's like, okay, that's clearly something inside of me is telling me that that's what I want to do. So do you use this for people that have hard times making decisions? I do. It's the same as the quarter trick. I use it for big decisions too. When I pulled my son out of private school this year into public school, so that's a, that's a big decision to me. With and the, that's what I ultimately did. Cause my, your pros and cons list are never helpful. Yeah. They're always equally weighted in some kind of way. Mine aren't. And you're, and you're, you're, you're going to, you're magic. Tell me more. No, I'm just 
I think I think it's an interesting dichotomy of the difference between an engineer because my wife is I'm pretty analytical, a, very yeah. analytical, very logical. Whereas people like you and me, Tristan, are more emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. So the emotion drives the facts that we ultimately weigh in our pro and con. Whereas with Rodney, the logic drives the facts. Yes, yeah, because so there's just, a lot of times where I don't. That's know. a really good point. I don't know where I'm gonna go with a decision, and I need that list. I I just. Like for me, like buying this computer, I just need the specs, like which one's better and then which one fits the budget and like, okay, check, check. There we go. But that's a much easier decision to make. Because there are discrete. There, yeah. there's You can quantify that decision. But then I would do that with schools. Like if I was doing Stanford and Harvard, like I would probably do the same thing. But then how do you factor in something like how how will I feel at this school? I would not have – at you that point in my life, it. I would have never considered it. I would now, but I would not have then. It's better – which was a better education yeah. value for dollar. Yeah. Right. Like where would I have the better – Where I have a quick question about that. Real quick, like your realization that the answer is within us about your boyfriend at that time – when you think back, like, did he want to go to Stanford? Like, or did you see signs or do you remember thing, little things like, yeah, he did want to go to Stanford? Or, like, is it, it just worked out that way? It just worked out that way. And, like, here's the thing, like, you, just, you don't know after you make a choice if that was the right choice or if it was more right than the other choice. We don't have the luxury of a crystal ball for the future or, you know, a crystal ball that tells us what it would have been if we had chosen something else. And so, like, once you... Something I do work with my clients on is like, okay, now you've made your decision. Now live wholeheartedly in that decision, you know, because the torture of playing mental tennis and what if, what if, it's like awful. Um, All I see is Two Face. I make my own luck. He's got the. It's so true. I love that. Yeah. So there's an interesting theme that I'm fascinated by in this root of parents allowing you to decide you didn't want to do anything anymore. And your current practice of helping people find their truth, <laughs> mm-hmm. like helping people find who they are so they can navigate that that soulful life. Mm-hmm. Um, have you always had that awareness that you know what makes you – like th- when I, I didn't like soccer, I, it just didn't work or I, I sucked at dancing. It, it, it seems like you've always had that. Where does that come from, from you, for you because – Obviously, you have a practice that helps people find this, but I feel like a lot of people have a hard time finding that, and they they're not rooted in it as as a child. Where does that come from? That's a good like, question. How, do you, how did you find it? Yeah, I don't. I can't pinpoint an exact moment, but I think that a theme of my life has been um, freedom to explore, like just permission to explore that there isn't. There are very few choices we make in life. Perhaps just having children is the only real choice that is you are stuck with, you know, that is finite. Like you can't undo that, you know, but most of the things like you can change jobs if it doesn't work for you for better or for worse, you can change relationships, you can change car leases. Like there's not a lot of decisions that are really like permanent. Murder. Well, those are bad decisions. <laughs> Good or bad. It's still permanent. Bad. Definitely. That's true. I don't even know what hey, to do with hey, that. Actually, listen, listen. Murder's taking life. Uh, having a child is giving life. So Thank you. There, Thank you. You just made that so dark. <laughs> I would, hey, look. This is where my brain goes. You said what decisions are permanent. I'm like, that's pretty permanent. That's pretty permanent. Yeah, that We're is true. Parties. Like self-harm. Yeah. But I don't know. I come from like the lightness of being of like there's – when we take – so, for example, when I work with a lot of high school teenagers, like the girls, I work mostly with high school girl teenagers, um, and then adults, but they're so worried about college, which mm-hmm. is the right choice. It's so much pressure. And I'm like, who cares? If you don't like it, just go to another one. And it's like that never would have occurred to them. Yeah. I mean, just the idea, like when you just awaken within you, like, oh, this doesn't have to be the beyond end all. I can try this, you know, because I do, I think life is about exploration. It's about trying things um, because every time you try something, at least for me, like I, 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 um, I, I reveal a new part of myself that I might not have known before because of that experience, you know, which is why we get so unhappy when we're doing the same shit over and over again, because it's very hard to grow by doing the same thing over and over again. Do you have a personal philosophy you live your life by? That's such a bold statement. I think I have many personal philosophies that I live by. Um, I don't know. What personal philosophy do you live by? Uh, connection and purpose. 
Okay, so you're talking about values. Um, I would say that, well, when you say values versus philosophy, what do you mean? I think it's probably the same thing. Okay. Yeah, my my values are also, go ahead. Clarify that, Rodney, then. When you say personal philosophy, I know what you mean because we've done a lot of work in this area, but what do you mean by it? Yeah, uh, what I mean is what the what are the things that are uniquely me? Right. Like, if I if I and and I'll, I'll just describe the exercise. So essentially, it was just like, okay, describe you in uh, twenty five words or less. Like, write down a whole bunch of words. Like, what is what 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 defines you? And you write down a whole bunch of words and most of them are fluff that you want people to think are you and aren't really you. And then it's like, no, nah, that's bullshit. And then you do it again and you write it and it's like, oh, that's clunky. And then like four years later, I finally came to my gift is connection and I'm seeking purpose. So, mm. You're seeking purpose? You don't have it? Um, I'm seeking purpose in all things. So helping other people mm-hmm. find purpose I'm uh, I'm trying to find purpose in the things that I do. So, like, I don't want to be doing things that aren't purposeful to me. Yeah. Um, And and I think you asked earlier, like, or or we talked earlier about love and, like, that being the reason for being here. And I think purpose is another one. I think a lot of people don't understand their purpose, so they don't feel a reason to be here. Um, It's a cornerstone of um, mental health is purpose. You know, why am I here? And, you know, the cliche is, why do I wake up in the morning? You know, but when we don't have that, when we don't feel purpose in our lives, and that can be professionally or personally, we are not in our optimal life. So, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the, the whole personal philosophy thing is taking all of those things and determining an anchor statement that truly drives your behavior, mm-hmm. whatever that behavior may be. Um, like mine is do the right thing. Mm. Like, so, no matter what it is, do I, mean, do I fall short constantly, right? <laughs> but like even, even if it's, you know, whatever it is, is making sure I weigh that I know this is the right decision and if it's the right decision, do it. And yeah. it's just part, it, it embodies my value system and everything that I am and who but I am. But it also fits your gift too because like your thing is like good decision making. Like, yeah. I, don't like I don't even understand it. You make good decisions. And, like, it's just kind of his thing. I love that. I, I would say mine definitely roots in truthfulness. Um, truth and courage. Like I live my life bravely. Um, and I think that's something that defines me. I think that if you ask people who know me really well, that's what they would say. She's lived her life bravely. I think that is very clear. It is very clear. Now you had, now you said there, um, kind of accelerating this conversation a little bit, because I am really curious, Mm -hmm. this cornerstone of mental health is anchoring on purpose. And And one of the things... And connection, and which, which is what you, your other one was. Mm, it is. There, one of the things that you said prior to us getting in the microphone is this idea of talking about mental health mm. and, and the importance of it. What do you mean by that? Like, what's, what's important about talking about mental health and why do you think people have a difficult time with it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important because it, it's like, how do you say it's like the heartbeat of our day-to-day existence right like we wake up and we feel good or we don't feel good and that is rooted in our mental and emotional well-being and so to why wouldn't we want to take care of that it benefits ourselves and it benefits everyone around us whether it's our you know our the people that we live with or the people we work with our entire community you know i believe that we are all connected through energy lines, right? And so, wherever I'm vibrating, the people around me are going to pick up on that. I know it to be true as a mom. You know, if I come home from work and I'm like still high vibing or I'm stressed or something, my son picks right up on that and now he's challenging and now we're both, you know, it's, it's a mess. And so, I have to take care of my own mental and emotional health um, to bring my vibration down to a place that somebody would want to be around and somebody else can thrive around. And I think we all have that responsibility. Think about the vib- vibration you create in your own body, right? So close your eyes for a second. Okay. Do, if you're listening, you should do this. Yep, you should do it, this. Unless you're driving, please don't. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> There's no response. Yeah, safety safety disclaimer. first. Safety first. Disclaimer. disclaimer. So just take a moment. Just take a moment to ground down, maybe starting with your feet. And just put all of your awareness on your feet. 
just noticing the heels, the arch, the balls, the toes, all of it, giving yourself permission to let go of everything that's come up in your day to day and everything that will come up later and to put just all of your awareness and attention on your feet and see if you can actually feel the weight in your feet giving way to gravity. You might notice energy in the body, the tingling sensation that we feel is energy. And we can direct our energy anywhere we want it to go. Right now, I'm asking you to direct it to your feet as an illustration of your power in moving energy wherever you want it to be. Okay, so while you're just being mindful of your body and your breath, say to yourself, or you can say it out loud, or you can either way, I can't do it. And notice where you feel that. You might need to say it a few times. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I suck. Notice where you feel energy going and what that feels like. Now say to yourself, I got this. I can crush this. I'm totally capable. And see if you feel a shift in your energy. Okay, you can open your eyes. I, uh, so where did you feel the I can't do this, Rodney? Back of my heels and, yeah, back of my heels, like a tingle. You? The back of my eyeballs. It became a very second. cerebral exercise saying, I can't do it. I can't do this. What was the next one? I can do this. Oh, no, no. After oh, it was like, I suck. Or- I suck. Yeah. Then yeah, I started yeah. feeling it, like, in my, and then my brows furrowed, and yeah. I felt it in my chest. Yeah, and I'm not good enough. Yeah. And then when you shifted to the more empowering statements, where did you feel that? Nowhere. I just felt light. Like my feet felt lighter. That's feeling something though. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's every- I felt it everywhere. I felt it everywhere. <laughs> I felt like a lightness. I felt it everywhere. I, I, I felt it channel back to my feet because that's what I was trying to accomplish. Well, and that's where you started from, right? And your feet, right. like that's a yep. grounding exercise, right? It reminds me that like, okay, it's the bamboo, right? The world can be a chaos, but if I can find my feet. I can ground down and I can be in the present moment. So it's a pretty cool exercise and just confirming what we already know is that like we are what we say, you know, we are what we eat, we are what we think. And so if we can change the being coming back to the idea of conscious language, if we can change the narratives that we're feeding ourselves on a daily basis, I can do it. I can't do it. I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. Then we have, you know, you notice the lightness. Like now I have energy to move forward because we're constantly just giving the brain instructions of what to do. That's the crazy thing about the brain is it doesn't know the difference between what's good for us and what's bad for us. It's not that complicated. Like in some ways, our phone is smarter than our brain. All it knows is familiarity. So our brain will always want to do the same thing over and over again because it exhausts it less. And we can't have an exhausted Mm -hmm. brain because if a bear comes out right now, we need all of the energy to fight it, to run away or to fight it. Yeah, whichever you you fight or flight or freeze. I like fighting bears. I'll try. I fight bears. I would totally fight the bear. (laughs) When when someone says or when you say mental health, what what do you mean by that? Mm. What do I mean by that? I mean, um, it it really see to me, it's all connected, right? The mind body connection. I know, no, that's very cliche these days. Is really connected. We just experienced it. You just told yourself something in the mind, and you had a sensation in the body, right? That's proof right there that it's connected. So for for health, everyone's blueprint is going to look different. What makes me mentally and emotionally fit? is different than what makes you guys mentally and emotionally fit. Does that make sense? So I think it's really about figuring out like, what is my soul's blueprint? What makes me feel optimal every day? What allows me to be of service, be find purpose, connect with others? Um, and it's not, there's not a prescription for it. It always looks different, which is why my job is so rad because everybody's journey is dif- is different. You know, not everybody is meant to be um, you know, on stage, for example. This, this is why 
this is going to be a random connection, but I'm going to make it somehow, some way. So, like, I recently I started, um, I refuse to tell people people what I think about a movie if I know that they haven't seen it yet. Because um, I don't want to try, I don't want to set their expectation based on my experience. I'm starting to become that way when people ask me, like, oh, like, mindfulness, what do you do? Or uh, workout routine, what do you do? Because, like, I've put in a lot of years of working out and, like, what I do for working out I don't know. I don't know where you are. So, like me giving my advice for what worked for me could be actually a detriment for you. And I don't want that. Like, I don't want to be that for you necessarily. Or like meditation worked really well for me. And now I'm like, now that's changing. Like now I'm not meditating so much. I'm doing Kundalini. And it's like, and I don't want what worked for me to be a crutch and or a, a hindering block or like it, it. I would love it to be a starting place for somebody. But at the same time, I know some people is like, oh, yeah, I tried meditation. It didn't work. This mindfulness is bullshit. And it's like, I like, like, I, like those I are my know. favorite people to work with in my office. People are like, meditation is bullshit. I'm like, oh, a challenge. Okay. <laughs> challenge. Changed my life. Changed me, my life. Well, and it's just, well, it's just a different style. But I love that you, I see, I feel like there's two sides to the coin on this is one, there's some ego involved that what I tell, when I share my experience with somebody, the way I do something that they're going to follow it. Yeah. Right. And they're not, I'm just, I'm just a, a vehicle for ideas and information and you get to choose what you want to do with that or not. Right. And that's a role I take very seriously as a therapist because it's very easy to fall into a codependent role with a client where they're like, you are their life guru. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. You you are your own. I need you to figure this out. And so like, I understand from your perspective, it's like, you don't want to rob people of the opportunity to travel their own path to get there because all the stumbling blocks you had to figuring out your perfect workout regimen, you needed all of that. To th- you needed all of those things to happen. Right. Right. And so you don't want to take that away from somebody. And we run the risk of that now because you can Google anything. I can how to anything as opposed to figuring out how to, right? It's the joy of you give your kids a bunch of cardboard and some duct tape and you're like, make a toy. Mm. like so much better than going to buy the prefab fort. Um, and it's the prefab fort looks better. It's sturdier, sure. but the process of creating that is what builds the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. And that's what builds you. Well, and it's the hard. Full, the full loop on it is like, there are so many people like, this is the workout you need. Like this is whatever, but like there are like four different body types and like, this body tech can't do this workout. Like it doesn't work for them. And like, this is the diet you need. You need a high fat diet. You need a low carb diet. You need all the carbs. You need like macros. And it's like, well, what, what, like, have you, have you explored yourself enough to know which one you should explore and which way you should do it? And it's like, like, I just becoming more conscious of the fact that like, there's so many people that are like, this is, this is the way. And it's like, no, there's like a hundred ways. There's like a hundred ways. And that scares us. And that's why I love like the process of therapy because it gives us permission to take what I call a time in, like a time in, like, let me, okay, let me connect. What is going to vibe for me? What is going to work for me? Even if it's unpopular. And that's why I go back to the body. Like, well, what feels good? You know, when I imagine myself, let's say making choice A with a job, let's say, or choice B, which one feels good to me? Because the body is constantly informing us. We make it so much harder than we need to make it um, by Googling and figuring all of these things out. Because as we all know, you can find any answer, whatever answer you want, you can find it. Which is why it's important to what you said earlier, cutting through what my parents said and what my school said and what's... All those voices in our head. I, for the, I work with mostly women, so I call them the leading ladies. Like who are the leading ladies in your head? Like who is driving your life experience? You know, is it, mm-hmm. is it the victim voice? How do you experience this? The, 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 how do you take this experience of mental health that you embody towards people who are struggling with severe, more severe mental challenges, especially they take depression, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, people generally, um, probably experience less than they might think they are but more than most uh, mental mental challenges Mm -hmm. right i mean how do you how do you take that philosophy of mental health into that space and then get people to talk about it because you know one of those things is talking about this whole ecosystem yeah well i mean i have the luxury of in my practice people come to me because they do want to explore they have found the courage within themselves and enough self-love even if it's just like a shred of it that says i want a better life 
I want more for myself. Um, and, you know, everybody who comes to my door is struggling in some kind of way with some sort of mood disorder. And it can be, you know, I believe that depression and anxiety are on the same spectrum and all day long, we're sort of somewhere on the spectrum. Um, the goal is to be in the middle, which is present. You think about depression, depression is all about the past. It's regret of the past and anxiety is all fear of the future. So that's why we always talk about happiness is in this present moment. Happiness is just where we are right now. Just the three of us, our breath, the energy we give and receive, you know, is that happy place. And it's hard to stay there. Um, but so again, going back to the point of like, I'm in a luxurious position because I'm in a space in my private practice, at least where people are willing to explore these things. And I have incredible admiration for everybody who walks through my door because I, I'm like, what, you're brave. Like you're brave and you love yourself enough to, to create a different kind of experience in this life. And I think making it more um, accessible, like I've been there. You know, I always tell my clients when they're like, Oh, you have all the answers. I'm like, I don't have all the answers. I'm helping you find your own answers. And I'm just like you. I'm maybe like one step ahead. I've experienced dark depression, you know, two days sitting in a bathroom. You know, I've experienced debilitating anxiety. I come from a family that has a lot of mental health challenges, you know, from bipolar two to OCD and like a whole big mix. And so I was lucky as a kid to not. I never had a stigma in my own mind and heart attached to mental illness because I love people that, that struggle with mental illness. And I have always loved them since I was a kid. And so to me, mental illness does not make somebody unlovable. It actually means that they probably need more love, you know, and that they are, they're like seeking that. Is that, is that enough to answer yeah, your question? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's like you kind of, to in, to a degree, you don't. You you don't deal with a lot of people that don't want to talk about it because of the nature of your practice. Right. So. But there is, you know, what shows up for me a lot is the anonymity, right? That nobody wants people to know that they're in therapy. My name's Tom. So, right. <laughs> totally. You know, it's like even in my in my waiting area, like I purposely have designed an office where anonymity is not prioritized. That is very unpopular. In therapy, usually it's like I come some if in this way, out that way. Out with that way so that nobody can possibly see me. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, that's just perpetuating the... Some of the some stuff of the that's going on. Is like, I should, I should feel shame for being here. No, you shouldn't. You should... There should be fucking confetti that pops out every time you go to therapy. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Because it benefits everybody. I can tell you through my own experiences in therapy. I am a better mom. I am a better girlfriend. I am a better daughter. I am better in this room with you. You know, and my vibration is higher. So everybody's is higher around me. Like, I think it's a personal responsibility the same way it is to like, take care of my teeth or my heart or any other part of my body. Um, what makes it what leads you to work primarily with women? I don't know if I have an actual answer to that. It's just a call. I know I work with men too. And I love my male clients. And I even I feel like they're even braver because I think for men to go into the world of mental health is even there's even larger stigma because right men are supposed to be strong and they're supposed to have it all together and they're not supposed to care and they're not mm. supposed to feel too deeply which couldn't be further from the truth that makes no fucking sense wherever that arrived from if i could undo one thing it'd be that mm. you know because it well that's a good question you know because it, you could undo you one could do thing. undo one thing it's not right you know and here i am i'm a single mom and i'm raising a little boy and um and I'm raising him not to shake it off. You know, I was definitely raised that way. You fall down. But uh, my dad's old school. I mean, you know, all, I think most of our parents are of that generation. But it was like, oh, shake it off. You're not hurt. Well, how fucked up is that? Who are you to tell me that I'm not in pain? You've just devalidated and lessened my I'm opportunity to feel pain. You know, and it's like, I'm not okay. If I'm crying, I'm not okay. So don't tell me I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, then you've not given me permission to not be okay. Now being not okay is not okay. There was a good, uh, there's an act, I don't know who the actor is. There's a really good article or some, I think somebody posted, they saw him and his dad with his daughter in a Trader Joe's and she's on the ground having a tantrum and he's just kind of standing there like, yeah, whatever you need. Like him and his dad are talking and, oh, I think he did the post. Somebody took a picture and he took the post and he's just like, I thank my parents for giving me the space to feel like whatever it was I was feeling and not... Because there's a lot of times where you see the opposite in a grocery store specific. It's like, we don't act out. Like, the parent's getting embarrassed. The child's acting up. And so, they're like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, we don't do that. And he's just like, yeah, okay. Well, 
when you're done, we'll, we'll, we'll move, move on. on. You know, and that's what we have to. We have to move through our feelings. And the average feeling, if we actually sit with it, it takes three to 30 minutes to be gone from our body. But we don't sit in it. We resist our feelings. We tell ourselves, oh, you don't need to be upset about this. You don't need to be angry about this. Calm down. You know, don't feel your feelings. Like your example is so like way to go for it's that. It's like dad. the conversation you and I had on Monday, Rodney. The idea of just I was having a shitty day it. Monday, and and he was mad at himself for being having mad. a shitty day. Yeah, because all the stuff you said, like shake it off, don't feel it. Like it doesn't work because the feelings they're they're it, it makes it they're an experience longer. in the body. They're meant to be felt. We're meant to move through them. And so, usually, like the shitty day in and of itself is not the problem. The fact that you hate the shitty day that's the problem. So let me that's, ask the question. And that's then. what we were talking about. Yeah, we were talking about it, and like. I had a lot of shit to get done and I knew I had to get it done and I was feeling shitty about it and I like I had to show up. I had to be present and like be able to get stuff done effectively, usually with me talking and that's a whole nother challenge like with people sometimes. But for me with people, it's like how do – so like if you, if you need to sit with it and experience it, how do you do that when you have to go show up? Like – how do you, or or how do you recommend that people do that? Well, let's think of a what's an specific example. So, like, um, so say the morning's gone haywire, everything's like breakfast, Murphy's law, blew everything up, that could go wrong, everything could go wrong, went wrong. You're ready to walk out the door. Finally, you lost your phone. You can't leave. You're late for a meeting that you have to leave, and you've got to drop your kid off. And so, you're just all up in your feels, right? And you need to feel it, but you literally – but at that at that moment in time, you don't have time to feel it because you have to make this drop off and then you've got to go show for your meeting. So, where do you – how do you make the time? Do you have one minute? Well, you're 15 minutes late. So, technically – So, technically, you do because you're already 15 minutes late. What's 16 if you're 15? So, I mean, I think the quickest way to – honor our feelings because you have to honor them. I think you have to honor them. Um, and that gives them permission to not be there. Right. And so we store pain that creates aggression and anxiety and depression, all this stuff because we're storing, we're not giving itself, we're not respecting it. Um, but to tune into the body. So this is my life hack. Close our eyes and notice. Okay. Like, so let's say the morning you described, I've had that mm-hmm. morning myself, you know, I would probably be feeling like really anxious, maybe angry, you know, that things aren't going my way, whatever. And I would locate where I feel that in my body. We'll just stay, okay. I feel that mostly in my chest, let's say. And then I would mentally outline that. Like, okay, where do I feel it in my chest? Let me draw like a, a mental circle around that spot. And then I would look outside of those edges. I would feel outside of those edges. Well, what does it feel like outside of that? Oh, it feels calm there. Okay, so not all of me is angry and anxious. A part of me. So that automatically to me... um, it, it lessens the power because I've made it smaller. Right? I, before, I felt like the whole of me was anxious and angry. Now I'm like, okay, it's just living right there. And I feel some calmness outside. So can I imagine that calm coming into that space that's angry and anxious? Can I use my own divine power to pull that in and maybe make that lessen a little bit more? And if you do this for just a minute, it will lessen. It might not go away altogether because your problems are still there, but it will lessen it. Um, because when the body is highly emotional, highly anxious or angry or whatever, you know, when it's going into that very primitive place, we don't think logically. The front part of our brain, um, the prefrontal cortex, which is basically, it's just it. cut out. It's just lights out. You know, that, that helps us make good decisions. That's why we forget our phone. That's why we drop our keys. That's why we do I, I all think, those dumb things. I think what's, um, what's interesting about this question too, and going back to this idea of being in the middle of anxiety and depression and we think of anxiety and depression on these grandiose scales of, of persistent feelings. Mm. But, you know, when you're late, as an example, um, I may be anxious that I'm late. I'm all of a sudden late. Now I'm depressed that I'm late. So I'm living on the extremes versus being in the moment. It's like, okay, I'm late. I'm late. I just, I got to deal with the next moment. And while I'm not happy I'm late, but, you know, what can I do about it right now? I actually find myself on a weird, uh, uh, a place in this when i'm late i get very anxious mm-hmm. the minute i am late i come to peace i'm happy like I'm, there's nothing i can do about it now i am now late 
I am now late. I'm not upset about it. It is what it is. I move on and there's, there's, I will, I will take whatever implications or whatever consequences that may come from being late, which usually are none. And I will just deal with those when those time, when that time comes. Okay. So because the problem wasn't the fact that you were going to be late. The problem is the fact that you hate being late because somewhere in your right. mental construct, you've created a narrative that says late people yep. are bad. You know, not maybe all people, but like if I'm late, I'm bad. Yeah, so you're tapping right. into like exactly. shame. And if you yeah. can rewrite the story of like, it's human to be late. You know, it's okay to be late. My like favorite two words are it's okay. <laughs> like mm. it's okay that to be five minutes late. It's okay. I didn't do a great job. It's okay. You know, like it's okay. I forgot the bread, you know, at the store. We got to give ourselves permission to be human because our, our narratives tell us that we're not okay if we don't get it right. And that's just not true. Because your proof is you are okay. You were late and you're like, nothing even bad happened and I didn't even care. Right? So, it always goes back to the stories that we're telling ourselves. What, um, real quick on the, the, the um, prefrontal cortex, like when you're in that emotional moment um, or moments or whatever, mm-hmm. like how do you, how do you, inter- what, how do you interrupt the loop so that you can get to the point that you can do that exercise and like pinpoint the where the feeling is and work on making it smaller? Like, how do you get there? The breathing. I mean, the the, the fastest, cheapest, um, most effective form of anti-anxiety is breathing. And there's no side effects, right? So, the idea is the brain is, there's many parts to it, but to simplify this conversation, you have like three parts, right? Behind your forehead is the prefrontal cortex. That's a, responsible for decision-making, logic, that kind of stuff. Um, the, the middle part is the emotional part. And then the bottom part is our primitive part. That's our fight, flight, and freeze. So anxiety lives there. So when the bottom part kicks in, the other two are lights out. Right? So that's why we don't make good decisions and we don't communicate and we don't say that what we want to say. We're not kind to other people. So the fastest way to get back to full lights on is to reduce cortisol in the body. And we do that by breathing. So taking breaths. I, for me, like the exercise we talked about with focusing on feet, that's my jam. Like I'll breathe. It doesn't matter if I'm in the middle of Target or if I'm driving, or if I'm sitting here with you, I can always find my feet. Even well, it does, and it doesn't uh, answer because I'm thinking like, what? A, like you got to have a conscious thought to even get to breathing. Like, what if you're so stuck in the lizard brain that you don't even? But that's why we meditate regularly because it it becomes more involuntary. Practice. It's a practice, and it's like, okay, I have this tool. Mm. This is what I can go to because you've trained yourself to. Let's say uh, my go to has always been when my kid pisses me off, I yell. I learned that. I wasn't born that way. I learned that somehow. And so that becomes my automatic. So I have to create a new automatic. So my automatic, I can train myself to go, okay, when I am triggered, when my kid pisses me off, then I breathe. And it, you just have to train yourself, right? Because no, 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 all of this, our behaviors are learned yeah. so we can unlearn all of them yeah. and relearn others. And to me, that's, that's so hopeful. You know? So once we have, have calmed the body, then we can go into the logic brain and go, okay, how how can I be on the forward side of my problem right now? No, that's perfect. How can I not be in the problem? Do you have any tips for helping? Like, if you notice somebody that's stuck in that, like, can you help them get to the moment where they can breathe? Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. But I also have like amazing rapport with my clients where I can be like, "You're fucking stuck in the backside," and that's why I call oh, it. Oh, you yeah, say it. <laughs> yeah. That's part of my intake. My initial <laughs> conversation is like, "I curse if you can't roll with that. You're not the client for me." Um, <laughs> So I also draw pictures to make my points. Like I'm a non-traditional kind of therapist um, and I'm very body oriented. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just say that, you know, another thing that I do, here's a good little hack. And I do this with my, with my kid because um, he gets very, um, and he gets very heightened. He's very sensitive emotionally. And so I'll tell him touch four things. So he has to get up and he has to touch four things like water bottle, laptop, um, my leg purse. And then he has to see three things. Um, Rodney microphone keyboard and hear two things. Air conditioning. <laughs> Rodney's voice. Right. And, so, and then name what you feel. I feel mad. Right. So when we can name our feeling, Daniel Siegel does this incredible research out of UCLA and he's really known for name entertainment. When we can name our feeling, we tame it. 
We no longer have it driving our car. We are in the driver's seat of our car, right? And that's really powerful. We want to feel in charge of our emotional experience, right? That's good emotional mental health. Um, so, but when you're touching the four things and looking at the three things and hearing the two things and naming your feeling, you can't be in your anxious mind because anxiety is all about the future. I'm so scared I'm going to get in trouble. I'm so scared people will judge me. I'm so scared this will go wrong. And it brings me like, okay, in this moment, I'm okay. In this moment, I'm here. I'm in this room. I'm touching things and I'm okay. Right. So it interrupts the pattern of future tripping or tripping yes. down the past, like past tripping, you know, tripping over yourself and everything you'd screwed up today already. So why do you think it's hard or difficult for people to talk about their mental health? Well, I think it's kind of a generic response, but there is such a stigma attached to it. I think there's such a fear of what we don't know. Um, you know, like I said, it takes a lot of courage to to admit like, hey, I'm not living my optimal life and maybe there's more out there. And I think that that's not widely embraced. I mean, we make fun of people all the time in culture. You know, one of the things that really like riles me up is when people in pop culture references make fun of like bipolar and OCD. To me, those are like the two ones that get made fun of the most. Like, oh, you like all blue pens in your cup? You're so OCD. That is so not what OCD is. People with OCD wish that's what it was. Like that would be an easy way to live. Um, so it's partially a misunderstanding as well as like, and, and then a misapplication that leads to Oh, back to another misunderstanding. (laughs) You know, and it's like, oh, it's it's Mercury retrograde makes me so bipolar. Like, that's, there's nothing accurate about that. (laughs) Just because you were sad today and then happy the next day, you're not bipolar. You're not bipolar. Like, you're a human. You're actually part of human experience. (laughs) You have multiple emotions in a day. And like, but the idea is like, we make fun of it. And so how scary if I'm going to go into a clinician's office and what if they actually tell me I have this thing that people make fun of, you know, and I think it feels so overwhelming. Like we're so used to like, oh, okay, if I go to the dentist and I find out I have a cavity, like there's a protocol for that. No one's going to be like, oh my God, you have a cavity? Like, how was your childhood? You know, <laughs> it's like, and there's like, there's a very direct transaction. I pay you money, you fill the cavity, we're done, you know, or anything with the physical body. There's like a protocol. And it's a little bit more complicated with mental health. So it's scary. You know, and I think people realize when I go into this, oh my God, I'm actually going to have to look at myself. I'm going to have to be with myself. We do everything in our power to not be with ourselves on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I use the car now for my time to be with myself. I used to use it to like catch up on phone calls, to listen to podcasts, to listen to the radio. You know, now I'm like, no, this is like sacred time for me to be with me. Um, it's not always pleasant. You know, I can fall apart and, at the stoplight. I <laughs> and, and I can fall apart. No, I no almost one, did no that earlier there. this week. Yeah. Actually, it's been a week. Uh, <laughs> but to me, it's like a very safe space. It's just me and my car. You know, sometimes I let my son, if he's raging, I'm like, go and just go to the car. Like, you can rage out there. See, and that's the other thing. I, I don't like talking about meditation because I feel like uh, my first year of meditation was like dark. Like, it was oh, yeah. not awesome and i tell that to people and they're like what do you mean i'm like i learned a lot of shit about myself yeah. and like and like i feel like that's not a glowing endorsement for meditation but it's like what happened but it, it it has to happen right like we have to take something apart well it doesn't matter it's a computer i have to take it apart to figure out what what's not connecting correctly and then i can put it back together and meditation is a process of like taking it apart and to be effective in that process it has to be a practice and you have to be brave and you have to be willing to see what shows up and not be scared of it, but go, okay, this is informing me. So for all my meditations, I oftentimes don't like what shows up, you know, and it's like, okay, but thank you for informing me on where I need to go right now. You know, so seeing it as happening for you, not to you. Not to you. Yeah, and I think there's a big a big uh, tie right there to why I, I would argue it's difficult for people to talk about mental health challenges, whether they're on the extreme end of things or the everyday challenges that we have is this negative association with the negative, right? Uh, um, and in, in, chem- in chemistry, a negative result does not mean bad. In, in language, negative means bad, mm-hmm. right? But just because we go to a place that deconstructs things that may have been a struggle in our lives doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Right. And this idea that, you know, for some, whatever reason, it's like, I got myself out of it. I've been able to manage through bad things and I've been able to do this. You should do the same. Mm. Well, to get there 
as an individual, it probably went through some dark times myself that I don't want to tell you about that you're going through now to get to a place where I'm going to get to. So, it's not a bad thing though to be in that space. Yeah. Like we all have to go through it at we some do. point. That doesn't mean it's a negative. It just is. Just you is. Know, if we, t- it made me think. It's like uncomfortable. Most- like I don't call them negative feelings. I call them uncomfortable feelings. Right. Like the feelings yeah. we don't oh, like yeah. are uncomfortable because that's what they are. They're uncomfortable. They're not yeah. bad. And yeah, I think that's a, an amazing point. Then it's all about reframe, right? So I can the stories that we tell ourselves. I can look at my childhood, and there was there was a lot of challenges. You know, it's not the childhood I would necessarily wish upon people in some aspects. But I also look at that, and I'm like, oh my god, thank God! Like because of that, I you know I am strong, I am resilient, I am a leader, I am confident. Like there are so many things that I am that I don't think if there if my childhood was arranged differently, I would be. So you can have the lens of a victim. You know, which is like, oh, poor me, you know, mom missed on X, Y, and Z, and now I'm all fucked up in A, B, and C ways. Or you can go like, wow, mom actually gave me a gift by not showing up in X, Y, and Z because it allowed me to become this. And there's such, now you have opportunity. Now you can go somewhere with that as opposed to staying stuck. And that's what depression is. Depression is pressing down of our experiences. And so we ultimately are pressing down our entire uh, life opportunity. Hmm. Um, all right. So for our listeners, for the world, which is our listeners, basically, it's every, it's all, <laughs> all over the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what advice? What tidbit? What like what what would you leave them with? What would you? What would if you she, leave if she with? hasn't left them with enough, <laughs> yeah, we need more. Basically, what we're saying is more. You're gonna have to edit this long pause. It feels like such an opportunity. I like pauses. You like pauses. Well, you know what? I'm gonna go in with that. Conversation to lean it, to lean into the pause. To not feel like you always have to know the answer right away and to figure it out. To lean into that that present. To not only lean into but love into that present moment, which mm-hmm. includes a pause. And even if it's uncomfortable, like you were saying, Keith, you know, negative. If it's uncomfortable, and to go, okay, like. I can lean into that and I, I can really get something out of that that's going to um, brighten my life and and give me a light to show me the way. Yeah. That's not a very poetic way to say that, but I think the word pause is really powerful. Giving ourselves permission to pause, right? Because like there are, there's a pause. I love the word possibility because it's made from pause, right? And I feel like we birth possibility when we give ourselves a chance to pause and not know all the answers and, and just to be curious.